I want to welcome each and every one of you here to what I know will be one of the most fascinating Bible studies you have undertaken when it comes to the, the issue of music and worship. And so the title of this session and the next session, which is going to build on top of that, is If the Foundations Are Destroyed, What Can the Righteous Do? We will be dealing with one very fundamental question during this session and the following session. And I believe if we can answer that one question, which is, does God have a model in the Bible that integrates theology and worship forms, I believe a lot of our other questions are going to be answered. And so you pray for me as I, as I communicate that the Holy Spirit will help me and enable me to communicate clearly so that we can all see what the issues really are. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, many of us have come from afar in order to be here because our souls are hungering and thirsting for answers. And so, Lord, I pray that you will send your Holy Spirit at this time to illuminate our minds, to help us to discern between truth and error, and, Lord, to learn how to worship you in spirit and in truth. As we are on our quest today, we thank you for the promise that your Holy Spirit will be our teacher and our guide. And we thank you for hearing our prayers in Jesus' name. And let everyone say, Amen. Amen. So if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We are going to look at the relationship between worship forms and theology. What is that relationship? What role then does culture, personal preference, style, and taste play in this discussion? What role does theology play? Actually, before I move on, how many uh, did not get a chance to get this latest issue of Adventist Affirm? If you did not, these first two sessions that I'm covering are uh, summarized in an article right in this. In this. So you're, you're going to want to make sure that you get this article. All right. Okay. Well, I've got a few of them here. And when they run out, make sure you go to the registration uh, desk because they have a few more boxes back there. All right. Are worship styles grounded in culture, personal preference, style, and taste, or are they grounded in the Bible? What we're going to do in order to answer that question is, again, explore the connection between God, salvation, and worship. We're going to examine how worship style is integrated with the sanctuary. We're going to look at the destruction, cleansing, and construction of the earthly sanctuary and its connection to worship forms. We're going to look at the Little Horn's attack on the heavenly sanctuary and its effects on worship forms. And we're going to examine how the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary is related to worship forms. So that's what we're going to do in this session and in the next one. So I hope you have your Bibles with you because we're going to be looking at many texts and many different models. This is a text that most of us probably know. Exodus chapter 25 verses 8 and 9. The children of Israel have been in Egypt for some time, and they've been called to the base of Mount Sinai, where God wants to reveal to them His law and the plan of salvation. And in Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 9, it says, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. When you read this text, does it appear to you that Moses just concocted this idea all by himself? Or that he was looking at all the other Canaanite or other nations to figure out what their sanctuary was like and then 
He patterned this sanctuary or the Israelite sanctuary after theirs. As I read the text, it was by divine revelation. God had given him the pattern and he told him to make it according to what you saw in the mount. Turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 19. Now the sanctuary would have a permanent resting place. 1 Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 19. Our president the other night was somewhere around this text, and he was, of course, pointing out the fact that we have a work to do. And in verse 28, 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 19, the Bible says this, All this, now what precedes all that? It's all the instructions that were given uh, in order to build a permanent sanctuary there in Jerusalem. So when it says all this, you just read what it says before that, and it's clear that it's talking about the sanctuary. So it says, All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by His hand upon me even all the works of this pattern. And so what was given to Moses by divine revelation is now given to David as well. And we're going to continue to build on this. Okay, let's go then to 1 Chronicles 15, 16, verse 19, and you'll see it up on the screen there, chapter 16, verses 4 and 5. You're going to notice that when the sanctuary is set up, worship forms are set up. All right? So, 1 Chronicles, we're in chapter 28, go to chapter 15, and verse 16. 1 Chronicles chapter 15, and verse 16. It says, And David spoke to the chief of the Levites to appoint their brethren to be singers with instruments of music, psalteries, and harps. Those are stringed instruments. Cymbals, sounding by lifting up the voice with joy. Verse 19. We're going to skip all the names. And uh, these singers were appointed to sound with cymbals of brass. And I will cover much later that the trumpets and the cymbals were used as a call to worship. So they were played together as a call to worship. The very next chapter, chapter 16, verses 4 and 5. By the way, the context here is, you remember when they, uh, when they uh, wanted to bring the ark up to Jerusalem and Uzzah put forth his hand and touched the ark? And then he dropped dead. And then David did a whole bunch of Bible study. And they figured out, wait a minute, we did this whole thing wrong. We're going to talk a little bit about, more about that later on. But that was the context here. In chapter 16, verses 4 and 5, it says, And he appointed certain of the Levites. I think that's very interesting as well. And we have a similar uh, a story back in Exodus 32, which we'll get to in the third session. The Levites. These were the, the pastors, the ones that were studying theology, the ones that knew the work and the plan of God. And I think that's very significant because today, who's in charge of how music is run in the CCM world? It's not the theologians. It's the CEOs. And what's the bottom line with the CEO? Money, not theology. And so he appointed the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord and to record and to thank and to praise the Lord God of Israel and Asaph the chief. And it mentions a bunch of names. It says with psalteries and with harps. But Asaph made a sound with cymbals, Benaiah and Jehaziel the priest with trumpets continually before the ark of the covenant of God. Now this next text we'll focus on later, but you'll notice that the pattern for worship forms was 
divine. It came from divine revelation. So turn with me here. This is 300 years later in the days of Hezekiah. 2 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 25. So, so far all we've done is point out the fact that the blueprints from the sanctuary were not made up by Moses. They were not made up by the Israelites. They weren't copying anybody else around. The pattern was given by God Himself. And when the sanctuary was set up, you'll find that worship forms were also set up. 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 25. It says, And he set the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with psalteries, and with harps, according to the commandment of who? Who do you have there? The commandment of who? David. David. And of who else? Gad, the king's seer. And who else? And if you want to make it a little more authoritative, you just keep reading. It says, for so was the commandment of who? The The Lord by His prophets. So the arrangement of the worship forms, the arrangement of, the fancy word is liturgy, Uh, This arrangement did not come by them looking out and seeing what kind of forms others were adopting out there. This was commanded directly by God Himself. Which meant that some forms were included and some were excluded. So God gave the blueprints and God commanded which instruments were to be used and which were not. 300 years after Hezekiah, you find the same thing to be true under the reformation of Ezra and Nehemiah. So this is about 600 years after David. And when there was a mighty reformation in that time, I'm just going to turn to Nehemiah chapter 12 just to save a little bit of time so that you can see that. When they had finished rebuilding the walls, notice this. Nehemiah chapter 12 verse 27, it says, At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, They sought the Levites out of all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to keep the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgiving and with singing and with cymbals, psalteries and with harps. If you go to verse 36, and it mentions all the brethren there, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra, the scribe, before them. And so even 600 years later, when there was a mighty reformation, This is what they went back to. Now, okay, so the earthly sanctuary, that's pretty well established. Does that mean that in New Testament times we're totally left without a pattern and without a model? No, not at all. Because the earthly sanctuary uh, was designed to point to the heavenly sanctuary. So if you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 8, it makes it very clear. Of all that the Apostle had written in the book of Hebrews, he says in verse 1, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. In other words, this is the main point. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. 
If you jump down to verse 5, it talks about the priests in verses 3 and 4, and it contrasts them with the priesthood of Jesus. And in verse 5 it says, They serve unto the example and shadow, in other words, the earthly priests serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern that was shown thee in the mount. So there is a heavenly sanctuary. And just as the earthly sanctuary, when it was set up, was the center for worship, so there is a heavenly sanctuary as well that is the center for worship. There is an amazing couple of chapters in the book of Revelation, and we will spend more time on that in the third session. Uh, these sessions build. And so right now we're just trying to lay the foundation in the first two sessions. In the third session, we will contrast two different worship experiences so that you can see the relationship between worship forms, theology, and philosophy. If you can get that, my job is done. I know you will make informed decisions. So in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, there's a trumpet call to worship. In Revelation chapter 4 verse 8, the, the, the angels are singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. Lord God Almighty. And they prostrate themselves before Him. That's what the word worship means there. Proskineo. You know, to literally to fall down uh, and worship God. Interestingly enough, the use of the harp was the only accompanying instrument in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Now, I know you've got a lot of questions just by me pointing these things out. All right? But try to stick with me. And it was a universal, uh, uh, it was a cosmic setting, universal praise. And so we'll, we'll expand on that a little, a little bit later. But the, the center for worship forms is up in the heavenly sanctuary. Again, string, uh, singing and instruments are connected to the reality of that sanctuary. Now, this is an interesting study. Jeroboam, the sanctuary and worship forms. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 25 to 28. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 25 to 28. Now the kingdom has just been split. Solomon is dead. His son Rehoboam is reigning, but uh, the prophet Ahijah told Solomon that he would take uh, the ten kingdoms and give them to uh, Jeroboam. Now Jeroboam must have liked the power. And you'll see as we read verses 25 and on. It says, Then Jeroboam, 1 Kings 12, 25, built Shechem and Mount Ephraim and dwelt therein, and went out from thence and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. Notice his reasoning here, verse 27. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem... Then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me, and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Whereupon the king took counsel, and made two calves of gold, and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And I'm just going to read verse 29. It says, And he set the one in Bethel, the other he put in Dan, and this thing became a sin. So he's saying, You know what? Three times a year, the children of Israel go to Jerusalem. Passover, Pentecost, Day of Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles. And he started to put two and two together. He said, you know what? If they go there, their heart is going to be turned to the Lord God, to the Lord their God, and to his representative, Rehoboam. And he said, we can't have that. And, he's, and so he set up two worship centers, the one in Dan 
and the other in Bethel. And the Bible says that these things became a sin. Now, this is the main point when it comes to worship forms. What Jeroboam did was turn his back on Jerusalem, right? He turned his back on the sanctuary. And when he did that, where did the forms of worship come from? They came from the surrounding cultures. That's where they came from. And notice, it says that it was calves of gold. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. So the worship form, when we turn our backs on the sanctuary, there is no longer a theological connection between theology, philosophy, and worship forms. The worship forms then become grounded in whatever time and culture we happen to be in. All right? And that is what is happening here. Now, if you were to ask the people, they'd say, no, no, we're worshiping God. But I'm going to share with you a statement just in a little while that says, no, it was not the worship of God. Because whatever is derived from nature that contradicts Scripture is ultimately what we're ending up worshiping. We might call it God, but it's really not God. So, this whole idea of worship forms is a lot more complex than my own personal preferences, style, and tastes. Amen. It is totally integrated with our concepts of God and with our concepts of salvation. There is a major shift here in the concept of salvation. It's no longer the God of Israel that brought them up out of Egypt. It was God through these calves somehow that did it. So all these things are integrated. But what I want you to notice for right now is that when you turn your back on the sanctuary, your worship forms come from whatever time and place you live. Whatever time. We'll take questions at the end. Notice this statement from the book Prophets and Kings. It says, Against the marked oppression, the flagrant injustice, the unwanted luxury and extravagance, the shameless feasting and drunkenness, the gross licentiousness and debauchery of their age, the prophets lifted their voices, but in vain were their protests, in vain their denunciations of sin. Him that rebuketh in the gate declared Amos they hate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. They afflict the just, they take a bribe, they turn aside the poor in the gate from their right. That's a pretty pitiful condition, isn't it? What was the cause of it? Such were some of the results that had followed the setting up of the two calves of gold by Jeroboam. Okay? Cause and effect. So, there's no such thing as worship forms that are neutral. Amen. No such thing. Why? Because they are totally integrated. Totally integrated with God and how He works. And when you, when you shift the foundation, you shift everything else. So these were some of the results that, were, that followed the setting up of the two calves of gold by Jeroboam. The first departure from established forms of worship had led to the introduction of grosser forms of idolatry. Until finally nearly all the inhabitants of the land had, been, had given themselves over to the alluring practices of what? Nature worship. But if you were to ask them... No, we're worshiping God. But this is what they were really worshiping. So when the sanctuary is abandoned, then the forms of worship lead to the worship of nature instead of to the worship of God. Let's look at Ahaz. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verses 1 and 2.
It says, And Ahaz was twenty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. But he did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord like David his father. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made also molten images for Balaam. So what does it mean to walk in the ways of the kings of Israel? Well, we just talked about that with Jeroboam. There's something interesting about the sin of Jeroboam. And all you need to do, if you have a computer, if you have a concordance, is punch up the word Jeroboam. And you will find this thought. For every king that succeeded Jeroboam, you will find this thought. Neither did this king depart from the sin of Jeroboam, wherewith he made Israel to sin. When the next king came along, he said, neither did this king stop. I mean, and you find it over and over and over and over again. Until finally, in 2 Kings, oh, about chapter 17, it says, when the Assyrians finally took over and, uh, and drove out the children of Israel from their land, God didn't let the thing go. He said, the cause of all this was what Jeroboam did right at the beginning. Now, to me, I find it interesting because we want to adapt and change worship forms in order to attract people. But biblical history says when our creativity is not uh, set within certain parameters and certain limits, that the exact opposite can happen. So we're actually losing a bunch of people as we try to do this. It just simply doesn't work. Biblical history has demonstrated it time and time again. And God didn't let the thing go. Neither did this king, neither did that king, neither did the other king. And so finally here, we're dealing with one of the kings of Judah. And he said, he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Now, in order to do that, again, Ahaz had to turn his back on the sanctuary. It says he made molten images for Baal and began to worship them. Now, what is the end result of turning your back on the sanctuary? Is it atheism? No. Look at verses 24 and 25 of the same chapter. Very interesting. Verses 24 and 25 of the same chapter. It says, And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God, and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God, and shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, and he made him altars in every corner of Jerusalem. So the end result is not atheism. The end result is pluralism and polytheism. You could not take the altar that was set within the sanctuary and place it outside of that sanctuary. You did that on pain of death. There's, the altar belonged in one place, and that was in that sanctuary. And that should teach us an important lesson of Seventh-day Adventists, because the cross, without the heavenly ministry of Jesus, is a distorted picture of the cross. Amen. So we should learn to view the cross and the altar within the context of the whole sanctuary package. But when you shut down the sanctuary, we're all religious beings, right? We've got to believe in someone or something. And so what do we do? You know, like, I don't know what the restaurant is, you know, we, we do it our way. We'll serve it up your way. Oh, you like it that way? Okay. Burger King. We'll have it your way. And so we set up an altar for this brother over here and that sister over there and all that. And we become the arbiters of what's right and what's wrong at that point. We've lost our theological grounding. Totally. Verse 25, it says, and in, and in every several city of Judah he made high places to burn incense unto other gods and provoked to anger the Lord God of his fathers. 
When the sanctuary is abandoned, then pluralism and polytheism are some of the results. Here are some other results. In 2 Chronicles 28, verse 6, whoo, can you guys see? <laughs> In 2 Chronicles 28, verse 6, 100,000 valiant men were slain. So as Ahaz began to walk in this direction, forsaking the sanctuary, forsaking the divine revelation of God, this was the result. Verse 8, 200,000 women and children were taken captive. In verses 17 to 19, Judah is plundered. And the king is so confused, in verse 23, that it says the king sacrifices to the gods of Damascus. Why? Because they helped they help them. It was Damascus that had, you know, that had ruined him. And so he said, huh, if the gods of Damascus are that strong, maybe I can sacrifice to their gods. I mean, here is a king who has totally lost his compass. And what was the cause of it all? Forsaking that sanctuary. You know, when most of us think of the sanctuary, we think of the articles in the sanctuary, okay, and the table of showbread, that's the, that symbolizes Jesus, and Jesus is the light of the world, and all those things are fine and good. But we have not thought about the sanctuary as providing the ultimate foundation upon which everything else revolves around. So, if the foundations are destroyed, then indeed what can the righteous do if the foundations are destroyed? This is a powerful text in Psalm chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. Once you take out that foundation... What can the righteous do? All right, I want to open it up to, to, some, to some questions. I know our brother had a question right there. And so, just on what we've covered thus, thus far, uh, are there any questions or any, or any, or any comments? What, if you could please st uh, stand up and go to the mic so that uh, the people can hear you, that would be, that would be great. Among the Egyptians. I know, but they were like hundreds of years from Egypt, though. Yes. No, that's, a good, that's a good question. Yeah, I don't know why that, that, that continued to stuck around. The microphone and the yes. Okay, the question was, uh, since we're several hundred years separated you know, from, uh, from Egypt, uh, what is the significance, again, of these, gold, of, of these calves? And so, uh, yeah, that's a good question. I've not, thought, I've not thought about it. The main point for me is that when you turn your back on the sanctuary, then this is where all these other forms come from. They come from nature. They come from, uh, they come from all, these other, all these other places. So, uh, and that is, that is the main point. And uh, so the sanctuary totally integrates theology, philosophy, and worship forms. I've read about 12 dissertations. I'm studying systematic theology at uh, Andrews University. I've read about 12 dissertations, Adventist dissertations, on the subject of worship within the last 20 years. And uh, there doesn't seem to be an overall system that integrates the data. Uh, and when that doesn't happen, every one of us flies by the seat of our pants. Okay? So the, the challenge for us as a Seventh-day Adventist church is that we're a worldwide church with all kinds of different cultures. And because we've not been thinking theologically about this, each and every culture is, is saying, no, this is the way we're going to do it, and we're grounding it right here. 
based on our cultural, uh, our cultural forms. Instead of seeking to say, wait a minute, what are the principles in the word here? Uh, is there indeed an integration between theology and worship forms? If there is not, I tell you what, there's no hope for us at all. There is no hope for us at all of unity. And as I'll cover later in one of my other lectures, uh, confusion about the way of worship leads to confusion about the day of worship. There is a very close and intimate uh, relationship between the second and the fourth commandment. And once the second commandment is violated, historically it has led the way to the abandonment of the fourth commandment. And when we come to the place where we can decide our own worship forms, just like Jeroboam did, and Ahaz did, then the end result is uh, cultural Adventism. We're just Adventists in name only, and pretty soon when the pressures of the beast and its mark and its image are upon us, we're not going to, we're not going to be able to withstand the pressure. Are there any other comments or, uh, uh, as, uh, as before we move forward a little bit here? Okay, all right, well, let's, let's do that. So if the foundations are destroyed, then what can the righteous do? Well, when the sanctuary is abandoned, worship forms are grounded in culture. Nature, nature worship is the result. The second commandment is violated. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything in heaven above the earth, beneath, or the waters under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. That is completely violated. And as in the case of Ahaz, the people instead are demoralized. And they have no defense whatsoever when the enemy comes in. At the same time, you got altars everywhere, and everybody's talking about Jesus. But yet, it's like, uh, you know, I, I, I pastored a church up in northern, northern Michigan. Oh, and the term just, just slips, slip, yeah, taxidermy. Never heard of that word before. And so I'm, I'm traveling, I was wondering, man, what's a taxi? There sure, there sure ain't no taxis up here. That's for sure. <laughs> What is, a, what is a taxidermy? Well, it didn't take me long to figure it out. You know, when you, when you see a, a nice uh, uh, moose up there, well, it only looks like a moose on the outside, but on the inside, it's all been gutted out. Well, that's exactly, uh, that's exactly what will happen to us in our religion. That's exactly what will happen to us in our view of the cross, in our view of Jesus. It'll be a Jesus in name only. The meaning will be all gutted out. At the same time, worship is contextualized. In other words, every location and every time decides on its forms of worship when the sanctuary is abandoned. And this is a very important principle. There is no longer any difference between the holy and the unholy when the sanctuary is abandoned. Even God is understood within the context of His creation, and there is no longer any separation between creation and God. They are both confused together into one. So in other words, God is not the transcendent God that lives outside of His creation. He is confused with the creation. And when God is confused with the creation, what do you think the next step is going to be when we talk about worship forms? Because if God is confused with the creation, is there any such thing as the distinction between holy and unholy if God is everywhere and in everything? No. You follow what I'm saying? No, not at all. And that's exactly what has been happening to the emerging church. By the way, you guys really need 
to subscribe to this magazine, Adventist Affirm. Uh, we don't have this issue here, but uh, I've written an article on the emerging church where I, talk, where I talk about this. We need to view this issue as completely integrated because, in fact, that is what it is. So when you tinker here, you never know what the results are going to be. Have you ever changed the spark plugs before? Or, you know, any of you uh, some uh, weekend mechanics? Oh, man, why do I got parts left over, you know? You try to, you tore it apart, it tore apart real nice. Then you put it back together and you're like, and then when you go like this, ah, no function. Well, I'll tell you what, you just can't put it together any old way you want. It's got to go together a certain way. So, this is very interesting here. Now, just imagine that you are following Ahaz. This is complete polytheism, complete pluralism. And you're, you're the next you know, pastor or conference president that's come in. Where are you going to begin? It's kind of like... Uh, I'm from Toronto, so I've got to use this team. So I don't want to pick on any California teams. You're calling a practice for the Toronto Blue Jays. By the way, we won the World Series twice. Even though all the players are American, it doesn't matter. But. <laughs> so you call your first practice for the Toronto Blue Jays. One guy shows up, and he's got a baseball bat. The other guy's got a football helmet. The other guy's got a hockey stick. These guys are playing on an ice rink over here. These guys are playing on a baseball field, and these guys are playing on a football field. But if you ask them all, they'll say, we're playing baseball. That's the kind of situation that Hezekiah inherited spiritually. There was no rhyme or reason to anything. But if you would ask them all, we believe in the God of heaven. No question about it. Where would you begin? 2 Chronicles 29, verses 5 to 9. Notice this. 2 Chronicles 29, verses 5 to 9. And your Adventist ears will perk up as we read some of these texts. It says, And he said unto them, in verse 5, Hear me, ye Levites, sanctify now yourselves, and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers, and carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. For our fathers have trespassed, and done that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord our God, and have forsaken Him, and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord, and turned their backs. Also they have shut up the doors of the porch, and put out the lamps, and have not burned incense, nor, nor offered burnt offerings in the holy place unto the God of Israel. Wherefore the wrath of the Lord was upon Judah and Jerusalem, and He has delivered them to trouble, to astonishment, and to hissing, as you see with your eyes. For lo, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Notice where he lays the cause of all that devastation that we covered in the previous chapter. He says, the reason, you guys want to know the reason for this? He says, the reason for this is because of what you have done and not done to the house of God. Amen. You have forsaken it as the ultimate model in which to worship God. And to construct a theology of God and a theology of salvation and a theology of worship. It's been chucked. And so he says, you start here. And so if I was coaching the Toronto Blue Jays, I, the first thing I would do is say, football field is out. Hockey field is out. Any other field is out. This is a baseball field. <laughs> we play baseball on this. You cannot play baseball on a football field. I, yeah, I mean, 
you know, I'm stretching it a little bit. Yeah, you could, but have you seen anybody do it? You can't play water polo on an ice rink. Water polo belongs in a certain context. So do worship forms. In 2 Chronicles 29, verse 15 to 18, they cleansed the house of the Lord. So it's just a simple account of how the priests went in there and did that. Now I want you to notice something very interesting. We read the passage earlier. Let's read it again. Because now what we have done is uncovered the philosophical theological context that made it happen. 2 Chronicles 29 verse 25. And he, that's Hezekiah, he set the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals and psalteries with harps according to the commandment of David and of Gad the king seer and Nathan the prophet. For so was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. This didn't come out of thin air. He didn't begin here. If you follow what I'm saying? When you get to chapter 30, there's a wonderful Passover experience. When you get to 31, they return more tithes and offerings than have ever been returned before. Did he start with tithes and offerings? Did he start with Passover? He didn't start with any of those things. Because if you get the field wrong, it's not going to make much sense. So he started with the sanctuary, because that is the overall model that integrates all the rest. So that's where he began. Our concept of worship and worship style is totally integrated with the cleansing and reconsecration of the Sabbath, of the sanctuary. Sorry, True biblical worship always assumes that the sanctuary is the context in which worship takes place. Now, the little horn destroys foundations. There's a heavenly sanctuary, all right? Greek philosophy, now I'm Greek, so if there's anybody that can pick on Greek philosophy, it's going to be me, all right? Because Plato and Aristotle were my grandparents. <laughs> Greek philosophy attacks the heavenly sanctuary. Read Daniel chapter 8, verse 11 to 13. So we're going to switch now. We've been talking about the earthly sanctuary. We've been talking about its desecration and what happened to worship forms. Now we just talked about Hezekiah, and he turned the whole thing around. And that led to the rediscovery of those ancient worship forms. Now we're going to switch to the heavenly sanctuary. And so uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8, verse 11 to 13. Daniel chapter 8. And notice what this says. It says, Yea, he magnified himself. That's talking about the little horn. He magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away. Now notice this statement right here. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Now, this is obviously talking about the heavenly sanctuary. How do I know? Verse 13. It says, Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily and the transgression of the desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? In other words, how long is this sanctuary going to be decimated? The answer is in verse 14. Under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. You know you're talking about the heavenly sanctuary now, not the earthly to make a very, very long Bible study short. But in verse 11, it says the place of his sanctuary was cast down. 
Now, what did that mean? Did it mean the little horn all of a sudden grew wings and flew all the way up into heaven? And then he took, you know, some tools and wrenched the sanctuary off its foundation and, and tore it off? Is that what it means? No. This is obviously speaking theologically and symbolically. It means that the central systematic role of the sanctuary would now be completely discarded. It would no longer be viewed upon as the center of our knowledge of God. It would no longer be viewed as the center of, our, of, of the plan of salvation. We would no longer see Jesus as the high priest in the heavenly sanctuary, the one who would be forgiving our sins. It would no longer comprise the framework and the pattern of worship forms. Uh, this dissertation was uh, published not too long ago. It says, if the sanctuary referred to in this passage is the heavenly, and it seems more reasonable to understand the foundation not in terms of physical material foundation, but in metaphorical or theological terms. This sense is corroborated by the occurrence of the term in uh, Psalm 89 verse 15 and 97 verse 2, where one learns that righteousness and justice are the foundation of Yahweh's throne. If the same metaphorical theological usage obtains for Daniel 11, it becomes apparent that the little horn does not attack a physical structure, but the theological foundation of the heavenly sanctuary, that is Yahweh's righteousness and justice. That's a dissertation on the heavenly sanctuary temple motif in the Hebrew Bible. So, it's simply saying that the sanctuary would no longer be the system. It would not be the place where God, salvation, and worship forms are integrated. It would, that would be gone. Now, how would they do this? How would they do this? You know, the Greeks have always been kind of a curious kind of people. They want to know how things work. And so back in the day, they were noticing all this decay and change and death going on. And they wanted to figure out an explanation that was different than the gods did it. You know, for everything that happened, oh, that was the gods that did that. Well, you know, that gets kind of old and it's not very scientific and your reasoning powers on all that go out the window. Because it takes, doesn't take a lot of genius to say, well, the gods did that. And so they were trying to think, you know what? There's got to be some explanation for all this kind of stuff. For all this decay and for all this change, there's got to be one universal principle that does not change. And when they thought about it, they said, you know what? There is a place. It's, uh, it's unlike the place we live in. Ultimate reality is timeless. There's no such thing as time or space in ultimate reality. And so they said, well, that's the one thing that doesn't change. There's no time and space. The crazy thing that began to happen in the Christian church is that this philosophical definition began to be how the church began to understand God. God is now timeless. God is now beyond space and time, or I should say actually incompatible with space and time. All right? Terms like eternal, immutable, pure, good, they're all affected. Now, when you read Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, and John the Apostle is receiving a vision, and he sees the temple of God opened in heaven. Is that a real temple? Is it possible for Jesus to move from the holy to the most holy place? Can you actually have movement up there? Is there things that are material up there? I mean, that are real? You can see and feel and touch them? Greek philosophy says, no, absolutely not. <laughs> That's, are you children or something? I mean, 
You can't have that. That's why most Roman Catholic and, and, and Protestant theologians, I'm not talking about the people, even, I'm not talking about even the pastors, but the thinkers, the Roman Catholic theologians and Protestants have, this is their view of God. This is their God. So when you tell them about a heavenly sanctuary, they're like, come on now. We know that ultimate reality is timeless. There is no time and space up there. There is no such thing as Jesus in the most holy place of a heavenly sanctuary. You've got to be kidding. And so that was how the little horn began to attack the sanctuary. The result? Earthly things are simply a duplication of heavenly things. How do I know that this is brown? Do I know it simply by sensory perception? No, because as you all know, sensory perception doesn't always give you all the facts. It doesn't always tell you the truth. This thing is a truth of reason. We know that this timeless world exists because it's a truth of reason. I don't have to depend on my senses to tell me. So everything we see here, I know this is brown. Why? Because there's a real brown up in heaven. I know that a sheet of paper is white because real white exists up there. This is a kind of off-white. The real white is up there. So you cannot have time and timelessness coexisting with each other. There's a complete dichotomy. And so what happens is that this system began to replace the heavenly sanctuary. That's why when you study the early church, the early church was all messed up. There were some great men of God who died and believed in the things that they believed in. But I tell you, this vision was gone. That's why the apostle wrote the letter to the Hebrews and said, hey, wait a minute now. There is a sanctuary up there. But because of these Greek philosophical structures, you know like how today evolutionism is in the air we breathe. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. Well, back then, this was in the air they breathed. As a system, the sanctuary has been replaced by Greek philosophy. There's extreme asceticism. Why? The immortality of the soul came from this. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. But in this system, you have a body and a soul. And the way that you become righteous, like if you remember Martin Luther, is you beat your body down. You deny yourself of everything that God created for you to receive that was wholesome and good for you to eat. No, you don't do that because you're not supposed to experience that. You're supposed to suppress the flesh so that the spirit can be enlightened and gratified so that you can be in touch with that timeless reality. Well, what are the effects of this philosophy on worship forms? The sanctuary had string accompaniment. Now, with string accompaniment, you don't only have monophonic music, that means one note at a time, but with strings, you can have harmony. But, uh, but have you ever listened to Gregorian chant? Huh? Gregorian chant, roughly from the 5th to the 16th century, the Reformation, according to Catholic scholars, killed Gregorian chant. Why? Because Martin Luther wrote everything in four-part harmony. It was monophonic, it was unaccompanied, and without strict meter. The use of harmony and in instruments was thought too sensual and earthly. So it's kind of like you're starving, and then all you get is a bread and water diet. All right? When God created all the wonderful foods for us to enjoy. So this was a strict musical diet, but yet, God didn't say you had to do it that way. Why? The chant captured the pure, <coughs> heavenly, timeless sounds. Now, I'm not giving a critique here on, on Gregorian chant. What I'm doing and what I'm hoping you're going to get is that why did, this, 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 why did they do this? Did it just come out of thin air? Absolutely not. 
When it comes to art and music, whatever rules the heart forms the art. Philosophy first, then worship forms. That's how it has always happened. And so what I'm trying to say to you is that this followed a platonic system whereby ultimate reality was timeless. You, were, uh, uh, you, you had a soul. The, the way to become righteous is to suppress all these, all these uh, natural desires that were okay for you to do. You know, temperance, of course. They said, no, you can't do that. This is the basis of Roman Catholic and evangelical theology. In other words, not, not necessarily the Gregorian chant part. But this whole platonic system is the basis of this. And as I've had the chance to study uh, Vatican II, Roman Catholics are uh, it, very interesting. In the beginning, during the early church, yes, you had the Gregorian chant. Uh, when, uh, the, when the Enlightenment came along, uh, when that started to happen, uh, people were looking at the natural world. People were going back to the, 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 the Greek sources themselves. People were looking at science and so forth and so on. And they began to expand. When you get to Vatican II, anything and everything goes. You see, because worship forms are in the realm of history down here. Theology is in the realm of timelessness up here. There is a disconnect between whatever happens in time and space and whatever happens in this heavenly, timeless world. So you can change all of your worship forms and do this however you want, and there will be no effect whatsoever on your theological structure, according to Roman Catholicism. But the structure itself is wrong. It totally knocks out the sanctuary. The sanctuary integrates everything. It integrates us with it. It's the basis of their system. Consequences for Sola Scriptura, this view. Great Controversy 599, the, the language of the Bible should be explained according to its obvious meaning unless a figure or a symbol is employed. But when you read Revelation 11:19 under this system, you say, no, that's, that's not a real sanctuary. John was simply using the cultural understanding of his day to describe this timeless worship that existed up in heaven. It was all cultural language. It was all culturally conditioned. It was not inspired, I guess, another way you would say it, to break it down even further. So Greek philosophy says, no, reality is understood on the basis of philosophy. Daniel and John's description of the heavenly sanctuary was cultural conditioned. Why? Because we know that ultimate reality has no time or no space. What are the consequences? Worship style and the sanctuary are linked. Now, if I had a, a whole bunch of uh, wooden blocks here and I pulled the bottom one, What's going to happen? The whole house is going to come down. When Greek philosophy hit the very foundations of the heavenly sanctuary, does it really matter now how you worship God? No. There's no longer any integration between the worship forms and the sanctuary. If the sanctuary is condi culturally conditioned, then so are the forms of worship. That only makes sense. Each person or culture is then responsible for making up their own forms as viable expression Expressions of their understanding of God. Dangerous assumption. Worship styles do not affect theology. So we can make up our own styles based on our culture or the times in which we live. If you do that, then philosophical reason is the starting point of this. And since we're, since we're part of what God created, the result is that we are worshiping the creature instead of the creator. That's what happens. So friends, if the foundations are destroyed... What can the righteous do? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I know I've covered a lot of things that may be challenging here. 
And I just ask that you will continue to bless, lead, and guide every one of us as we grapple with something that is critical at this point in Earth's history. Worship is at the very heart of the great controversy. And we pray that you would enlighten our minds to teach us, to guide us, so that we can worship you in spirit and in truth. We ask and pray all this in the worthy name of Jesus. Let everyone say, Amen. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.